Warning, binge mode contains adult content. It's Yule Ball time. You know what that means? That means kids pairing up, hormones going wild, asking people out, getting turned down, getting lucky, maybe. So if that's not the kind of thing that you're into, that's not the kind of discussion you want to hear, please check out the Press Box with David Shoemaker and Brian Curtis. (laughs) One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we've spent the entire run of Binge Mode Harry Potter making fun of our former dearly beloved producer Jason Cahill for once saying that the thing he remembered about Goblet of Fire was, quote, something underwater. Something underwater. Please proceed with extreme caution. And now Binge Mode. But Ron was staring at Hermione as though suddenly seeing her in a whole new light. Hermione? That was right. You are a girl. Oh, well spotted. She said acidly. Well... You can come with one of us. No, I can't. Snapped Hermione. Oh, come on. He said impatiently. We need partners. We're going to look really stupid if we haven't got any. Everyone else has. I can't come with you. Said Hermione, now blushing. Because I'm already going with someone. No, you're not. Said Ron. You just said that to get rid of Neville. Oh, did I? Said Hermione, and her eyes flashed dangerously. Just because it's taken you three years to notice, Ron, doesn't mean no one else has spotted I'm a girl. And welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today. a great website. Now that he's finished opening every foam tap in the prefect's bathroom and sharing a special evening with Moaning Myrtle. I make that shit moan. (laughs) The Ringer staff writer and your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal? Yeah? Nearly all the bubbles are gone, but that's okay because it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you opt for the bubblehead charm, partial shark transfiguration, or gillyweed. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Five points. Five stars for Binge Mode. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, and which is an excellent place to find a Mermish tutor. Would love to speak Mermish. Mermish. Yesterday on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how isolation shapes chapters 16 through 20 of Goblet of Fire. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 21 through 26 of Goblet. That's right, six chapters today. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While mm-hmm. those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. On details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon. Is that a wide canon under your dress robes or are you just happy to see me? (laughs) Taking the entire series into account from the moment we pick beetles out of each other's hair. So put on your dress robes. Mm. Because it's time to head to the Yule Ball. Mal? Want to go pod me? Sorry? Do you uh, do you want to go podcast with me? If so, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Goblet chapters 21 through 26 by climbing aboard this Scarlet steam engine and plot the Hogwarts Express. 
Choo-choo. Sorry, I told Cedric I'd go on the Hogwarts Express with him. Well, what's he got that I don't have besides <laughs> talent and good looks? <laughs> 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 and being like a nice guy. The dragon has been vanquished. Yes. But a much more dangerous pressing concern is at hand. Ooh, something is pressing. <laughs> Puberty's here. And so is the Yule Ball. Essentially, the Hogwarts prom. And Harry and Ron, boy, are they having trouble finding dates. Hermione doesn't, though, and spends a wonderful evening with Vic the Dick until jealous Ron ruins everyone's fun. Harry, having spent literally months procrastinating on trying to figure uh, out the egg Unbelievable. Unbelievable shit. <laughs> Harry, should you get started on the egg? Nah. nah I got until February 24. Come on. Finally, figures it out. With help from Cedric. And moaning Myrtle. Moan, baby. And then even more help from Dobby. Harry's able to swim into the lake, rescue Ron and Gabrielle Delacour from the Mer people and emerge triumphant once again. Two tasks down, one to go. Just because it's taken you three years to notice, yes. Jason. Yes. Doesn't mean no one else has spotted I'm a podcaster. Sorry. And that gets us to this episode's big Apologize. idea. That's my bad. <laughs> So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The mm. defining theme of chapters 21 through 26 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is sex. No, sorry, maturation. That's right. Chapter 21, the House Elf Liberation Front. I love that name, by the way. It's much better than Spew, one, two, and it's more martial. It's more militant. Can you believe Ron comes up with that? <laughs> Amazing, Maybe to be honest. Maybe the biggest honest. shock in the entire series. That is really good. It's great. <laughs> Harry, for the first time in ages, feels like one with the group again, hungry and happy at last. His fellow Gryffindors talk Harry into opening his egg, and a screechy wail fills her. <laughs> Neville thinks it sounds like someone being tortured, which is a dark thing for fucking Neville to say, and suggests that Harry might have to fight off the Cruciatus curse in the second task. George says, don't be a prat, Neville. That's illegal. Uh, yeah, like nothing illegal has ever taken place here. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Mr. fucking poison random people for laughs. Get the hell out of here. Pass the canary creams. <laughs> right, yeah. Clearly the six years defense lessons with Bard Eye going differently than the fourth years. The twins are offering up snacks and Hermione asks how they get into the kitchen. She's planning something. Her intentions are maturing and so is Weasley's Wizard wheezes. That IPO is maturing, guys. <laughs> As the twins' newest candy, canary creams, briefly turns Neville into a bird. Briefly. They're great branders. All these things sound delicious. Yeah, until they fucking bleed uncontrollably <laughs> from the nose. The scroots also maturing, much to everyone's dismay. There are now only 10 left, and they're bigger and more horrifying than ever. Unfortunately, Hagrid's scrut knowledge hasn't advanced at all. This is Arthur Weasley shit. <laughs> I'm not sure whether they hibernate or not. Thought we'd just try and see if they fancied a kip. Now, if you excuse me, I need a nap. <laughs> Good night, everyone. <laughs> Who's that over there? Rita Skeeter writing down everything I'm doing? Great. He puts them in boxes lined with pillows and fluffy blankets, which the scrutes promptly blow up. Good job, guy. Glad you mentioned Rita. Yeah. Because as... Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Hagrid are trying to wrangle the scroots. Your girl, your personal hero, your vote every year Someone, for the Pulitzer. I, this is Rita Skeeter. First of all, eyes. let me just say one thing about 
my vote for the Pulitzer. <laughs> Who else is out there writing stories? Literally zero people. What about the fucking quibbler, my What guy? about the quibbler? The quibbler's <laughs> out there writing gibberish. Literally no one understands what the quibbler is saying. Listen, Luna and I know the truth. One day you'll join us. Listen, Luna's reading upside down right now. She has no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> she's fucking reading the quibbler the wrong end up. <laughs> she's an innovator. Yeah, she really is. Hagrid reveals that Dumbledore has told Rita she's not allowed in the school anymore. Weirdly reassuring moment where you're like, oh. It's on top of it. Dumbly. Dumbly getting serious now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for keeping not the Death Eaters out, but at least the uh, yellow journalists. It doesn't seem that this mandate has made any difference, however, because here Rita is on the grounds. Just as Hagrid is about to implicate himself regarding the Scroot's mysterious origins, Hermione throws Harry out there as bait to distract Rita. Harry stands hard for Hagrid and his class, but Rita notices the other students. This is so funny. Quote, Dean, who had a nasty cut across one cheek, Lavender, whose robes were badly singed, Seamus, who was nursing several burnt fingers, and then to the cabin windows where most of the class stood, their noses pressed against the glass, waiting to see if the coast was clear. Not the best assessment of how yeah, things are going for Hagrid. Great. Hagrid agrees to an interview to discuss, quote, these air bang-ended scoots. It's clear that a new worry should be bubbling up here. Is Rita going to drag Hagrid through the mud next? How many more worries can Harry juggle? Man. After another day, including a divination lesson full of death predictions that Harry finds a lot easier to stomach now that Ron's there laughing by his side once again. Hermione rushes up to Harry in a frantic state. The most amazing things happen, she says. She takes them to the kitchens and forces Harry inside, where he's greeted by a joyous Harry Potter, sir, Harry Potter. Who else could it be but Dobby? The Dominator. Looking like a fucking hipster. The Dobster. And Mismatched. Home and Los Come Dobby back to lo- Park. Dobby looks just like Harry remembers <laughs> because all house elves look the same. <laughs> Harry. <laughs> Harry wanders into the kitchens. And Dobby, uh, no, Dobby, oh, Dobby, Uh, Dobby, 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 oh, Dobby, Dobby. (laughs) Dobby looks just like Harry remembers, except for his outfit, which has matured considerably from his days in that horrid, filthy pillowcase in the book. He had done an even worse job of dressing himself than the Wizards at the World Cup. He has a tea cozy for a hat. Again, total hipster dude. (laughs) Tea cozy for a hat, a tie over his bare chest, Soccer shorts and mismatched socks. I see that every day, <laughs> including the one with which Harry Freedom. Oh, that's so sweet. That is sweet. Dobby is working at Hogwarts. Yes. He's got a job and Winky's there too. Dumbledore hooked them up. Harry takes in the layout of the kitchen with the tables corresponding to the ones in the Great Hall above. A great bit of world widening here for us and Harry alike. Ah, so this is how we eat. I've never wondered about this. The food just appears. Sure, surely it just appears. To how? Dobby takes him over to Winky, who's carefully dressed, but a wreck. We learn about Dobby's journey. He's been looking for work for two years, unsuccessfully, because, crucially, he's asking to get paid. Get what's yours, my guy. Get what's yours. But, like, when free labor is out there, it's hard. This isn't just a maturation. This is truly trailblazing. Dobby's redefining what's possible for a house elf. The other Hogwarts house elves who are bringing over tea and treats look embarrassed, but Hermione praises him. Good for you, Dobby. Dobby found work for him and Winky together, and Dumbledore has agreed to pay him. Winky refuses, but Dobby's like, 
Give me what's mine. Give me the money. One galleon per week, one off day per month after Dobby turned down Dumbledore's offer of 10 galleons a week and weekends off. Dobby explains that house elves are not allowed to speak ill of their masters. Quote, "'Tis part of the house elves' enslavement, sir. We keep their secrets in our silence, sir." Key foreshadowing here for everything to come with creature, cave, etc. Dumbledore has given Dobby permission, however, to speak mm. ill of him. Quote, he said we is free to call him a, a barmy old codger if we like, sir. <laughs> Dobby's so great. I can love him. When Harry asks if his new station means that he can speak ill of the Malfoys, Dobby, with the strange new freedom coursing through him, says that his old masters, quote, were, were bad, dark wizards. And then he's briefly sucked back into punishing himself for speaking ill in this fashion, but Harry stops him. Dobby remembers he doesn't have to do that anymore. His life has changed so drastically in so many respects, but those changes don't all come naturally for him, even if his force of will is fully there. Winky's overcome by all of this, though, lamenting sincerely her absence from the life of Mr. Crouch. Winky's dismay at being free and the loss of her old life is interesting to consider. Part of the maturation process is realizing that things are rarely black and white. Winky is crushed by the loss of structure and tradition, and her feelings should not be hand-waved. Having agency in one's life, having the ability to choose what path is best, is a natural right. But we shouldn't delude ourselves into believing that because something is correct, that it also must be easy. Hermione, quite wrongly, as we'll realize in time, tells Winky that they've seen Crouch and, hey, he's fine. He looks great. He's doing well. And then when Hermione mentions Bagman, Winky starts some surprising shit talk, calls him a bad wizard. She won't specify. Now, for us, for Harry, ooh, ears are perking up. A bad boss? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't we, care that Bertha's dead. We've seen it in action. Don't worry. <laughs> but a bad wizard? Like, evil? This, coupled with the mysterious moment in the woods after the Quidditch World Cup and Harry's extremely strange my good friend Ludo chat before the first task, has our suspicions about this character maturing along with Harry's. Storing this latest strange nugget for later, they make their farewells, including Ron promising Dobby a Weasley sweater for Christmas. Quote, Dobby was delighted. In a truly sweet, tender moment, Harry, cream cakes and pies loaded into his pocket, says- See ya, Dobby. And Dobby replies tentatively. That's how it's described. Tentatively. Can Dobby come and see you sometimes, sir? Of course you can, said Harry. And Dobby beamed. Oh, my heart. My heart. Dobby and Harry are back in each other's lives. And their relationship is already maturing. From a well-intentioned but very badly mismanaged warning back in chamber into a rare and truly beautiful friendship that will literally have life-saving implications down the road. Chapter 22, The Unexpected Task. Did we say that worrying about Hagrid was going to add extra mental and emotional strain? Well, nothing compared to worrying about what Megalion dropped on the class at the end of Transfiguration. Guys, it's time to dance. Yes! To ask people out on dates, the Yule Ball. A tri-wizard tradition will take place over the holidays. It's for fourth-year students and older. Though attendees may invite younger students if they wish. The dress robe mystery has been solved. From the book, the Yule Ball is... Of course, a chance for all of us to let our hair down, says Megalion in a disapproving voice. Giggles abound. Megalion keeps Harry after class and begins to talk about the champions and their dance partners. From the book, Harry's insides seem to curl up and shrivel. He feels his face going red. And again, I don't dance. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> Megalion fires back. That's the whole point of this little chat. The champions open the ball with their partners. And remember, 
It's a magical contract, guys, so you got to dance. Now, if we thought your boy was worried about facing a dragon in front of the whole school, it's nothing to how he feels about this. The prospect of dancing with a girl at all, let alone in front of everyone, Harry hasn't even been able to bring himself to share his feelings for Cho or really speak to her beyond a basic exchange. This is a key moment in a young person's life as romantic interests mature and our interactions and desires mature in kind. It can be awkward and discomforting when you get to operate at your own pace and do so privately away from prying eyes. Harry's going to have to take this step for all to see. I'm not dancing, he said. It is traditional, said Professor McGonagall firmly. You are Hogwarts champion and you will do what is expected of you as a representative of the school. So make sure you get yourself a partner, Potter. Harry's 14 at this time. It's really shocking to me, actually. Then he's like, I don't want to dance. <laughs> I was 14. I was like, man, I'll fuck a hole in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I think Harry would rather fuck a hole in the ground than ask a girl I, to dance. I would like, That's the thing. Fucking, I will fuck the creases in the couch cushions. <laughs> Let's go. Oh Harry's like, oh, I don't, wanna, I don't know. Oh, man. Harry <laughs> feels that he'd rather fuck the couch cushions or face a dragon again right. than ask a girl out on a date. That's understandable. Naturally, the school is particularly interested in what he's up to. Yeah. Who his partner's going to be. He's a champion. He's the chosen one who will get the honor of entering the ball on his arm. That's right. Harry once again feels completely on stage, but he's not as alone as he thinks here. This angst, it's universal. His quest might feel particularly high stakes because of the mortifying prospect of opening the ball without a partner if he can't get one. And everybody's seeing that shame. And of course, in his mind, the equally mortifying prospect of having to open the ball with a partner if he does get one. But every fourth year student and above is in the same boat. The castle post-U-Ball announcement is a breathing ground for rampant teen angst. Typically, Harry's in the minority of students who stay at Hogwarts over the holidays, but now almost everyone's sticking around. And they seem to Harry totally obsessed with the ball. Quote, or at least all the girls were. And it was amazing how many girls Hogwarts suddenly seemed to hold. In perhaps the least surprising turn in the entire series, mm -hmm. the only person who seems to be struggling more than Harry here is Ron. <laughs> when Harry asks, why do they have to move in packs? Ron's right there with them with this suggestion. Lasso one? Woof! Yeah, it's fucking good shit, honey. <laughs> Ron tells Harry he's not going to have any trouble finding a date. He's a champion. It's Harry Potter. It's true. But Harry only wants to ask Cho. Mistake. And he knows how popular she is. And she's a year older. She's a Quidditch player. She's very pretty. To Harry's amazement, however, Ron appears to be right. Harry? Desired. Maturation is more than just the theme of this set of chapters. It's really one of Goblet's overarching themes as yes. we get to watch these characters grow up before our eyes. The book begins, as we previously noted, with the series' first on-page, non-flashback, contemporaneous, unambiguous murder, straight up. And our characters are now at the stage in their lives when they're beginning to cast around for romantic partners. Even Hagrid's out there being like, oh, get me some of that. Violence and sex are the meat and potatoes of adult content, guys. I thought it was tits and dragons. Also that. To quote my, my sage. Same thing. Harry's quest for a date to the old ball is interesting and appropriately angsty. He is being asked out. He, by tall and attractive women. Mm. Like women, plural. <laughs> and he's turning them down. This is a flex by my guy, Harry Potter. And yet, it would not be life if, despite all that, 
you could still find a way to be miserable. She was quite good looking, said Ron fairly. <laughs> After he'd stopped laughing, this is when Harry has turned down yet another potential power more. She was a foot taller than me, said Harry, still unnerved. Imagine what I'd look like trying to dance with her. Listen, when you're lying down, everybody's the same height. <laughs> Tough look for Ron, who's best friends with a guy who is rich and much more talented, who is currently wading through lakes of potential dates, while he himself has to wear hand-me-down dress robes and can't catch a first look from anyone. At this point, anyway, Fred and George helpfully are busting his balls ahead of the Yule Ball, as two big brothers really should. That's their job. So, you lot got dates for the ball yet? Nope, said Ron. Well, you better hurry up, mate, or all the good ones will be gone, said Fred. <laughs> Iconic. Yeah. The twins are not just men of words. They're men of action. When Ron asks, well, okay, do you have a date? The following absolutely iconic sequence ensues. Angelina, said Fred promptly without a trace of embarrassment. What, said Ron, taken aback. You've already asked her? Good point, said Fred, who turned his head and called across the room. Oi, Angelina! Angelina, who had been chatting with Alicia Spinnett near the fire, looked over at him. What, she called back. Want to come to the ball with me? Angelina gave Fred an appraising sort of look. All right, then, she said, and she turned back to Alicia and carried on chatting with a bit of a grin on her face. Legendary. Yeah. For Harry, Ron, and many others, the Yule Ball highlights their lack of maturation or acts as a catalyzing incident to spark it. For Fred Weasley, no jump start was necessary. Fred Weasley fucks. Perhaps a sign of how high the tensions are running as the students attempt to process these new feelings? Hagrid! He's the one showing uncommon tact, not pursuing the subject when Harry says he doesn't have a date yet. And throughout this whole process, Harry can't help but think of what Hermione had previously said about Crumb. They only like him because he's famous. Harry's worried about that being the motivation behind so many people coming up to him. And ah, speaking of Hermione, some of the series' signature moments of teen awkwardness come in this stretch as Ron and Hermione bumble up against their... Still unsaid or unrealized or a little bit of both feelings. Quote, we should get a move on, you know. Ask someone. He's right. We don't want to end up with a pair of trolls. This is Ron speaking. Hermione let out a sputter of indignation. A pair of, what? Excuse me? Well, you know, said Ron shrugging. I'd rather go alone than with Eloise Mijin, say. Tough. (laughs) Tough luck. (laughs) Her acne's loads better lately and she's really nice. Her nose is off center, said Ron. Oh, I see, said Hermione, bristling. So basically, you're going to take the best looking girl who will have you, even if she's completely horrible? Er, yeah, that sounds about right, said Ron. What a bad look for our guy, Ron Weasley. It's a fucking really tough couple of chapters for Ronnie boy. <laughs> Hermione is offended here because Ron is being a total jerk. And yes. pretty much any woman, maybe any person of substance who's having this conversation with Ron would be offended hearing this, but she's also hurt because Ron is not remotely on the same emotional wavelength. This is what Taylor on The Bachelor would have called emotional intelligence. <laughs> Listen to Bachelor Party. And Hermione's starting to realize that, twist guys, she might want Ron to be on the same emotional yep. wavelength. Hermione has always been leagues more mature than Ron and Harry in every respect. Leagues. And... This is just one more area in which she's lapped them, but it's also an area where lapping them doesn't feel good. In fact, as we're going to see over the rest of this chapter and the next, it feels actively bad. Harry has faced Voldemort in some form or fashion multiple times. He's stared down a troll, a giant spider, battled a basilisk, and outmaneuvered a dragon quite recently. 
And now his greatest challenge awaits. Ask out Cho. After trying to catch her alone, he finally musters the courage to approach. Giggling should be made illegal, Harry thought furiously as all the girls around Cho started doing it. Hit it, my dude. Let's go. Want to go ball with me? Hmm. Not finding that one in Charms and Spells a Compendium. Say again, my guy. Do you want to go to the ball with me? Said Harry. Why did he have to go red now? Why? Oh, said Cho. And she went red too. Oh, Harry, I'm really sorry. And she truly looked it. I've already said I'll go with someone else. Someone handsome. (laughs) What? Mean. Is the chosen one getting turned down? From the book, it was odd. A moment before his insides had been writhing like snakes, but suddenly didn't seem to have any insides at all. Before Harry can stop himself, he asks, who are you going with? Cedric Diggory. Wow. Dagger. From the book, his insides had come back again. It felt as though they had been filled with lead (laughs) in their absence. Harry had been starting to really like Cedric. Now, from the book, now he suddenly realized (laughs) that Cedric was in fact a useless pretty boy who didn't have enough brains to fill an egg cup. (laughs) Savage. This is far from the last moment that will unite and test Harry and Cedric. Whether or not Harry can move beyond this will test Harry's maturation. Pain and disappointment are crucial to the maturation process. You can't always get what you want, a famous rock singer who seemingly always got what he wanted once crooned. And how you respond to that reality dictates just how mature you are. Remember, Cedric got it in first. (laughs) So how does Harry respond? Well, by jumping right back up on the horse and asking Parvati to the ball. But not before he returns to the common room and sees an ashen-faced Ron. Quote, a sort of blind horror on his face. Harry's not the only one, apparently, who's had a tough day. Ginny, part gleeful observer, part sympathetic sister, recounts how Ron asked Floor, yes, Floor, the most beautiful woman shoot, any of these people have ever seen. Shoot your shot, my guy. <laughs> <laughs> to go to the ball with him, quoting Ron here. There were people all around. I've gone mad. Everyone watching. Yeah, you gotta stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Know your abilities. This isn't even like trying to outkick your coverage. This is like. (laughs) It's good to have dreams and aspirations, but you know, what is it that Rowling wrote? It does not do well to dwell on dreams. It does not do to dwell on dreams. Don't dwell on these, my guy. Just move on. Floor, we learn, did not even respond. Harry tells Ron not to blame himself. She was probably turning on that Vila charm for Cedric. Harry says, displaying a tendency that all humans possess, no matter how mature or immature any of us are at a given point in our lives, to try to wound those who we feel have wounded us. Harry's taking a shot at Cedric here because he's pissed. He's pissed. Quote, she was wasting her time. He's going with Cho Chang. Harry tells Ron that he's just asked out Cho. Quote, Ginny had suddenly stopped smiling. Indeed. Ron regains some of his color by giving into another very human tendency that impacts all of us. Schadenfreude. Neville, he tells Harry. Ask Hermione. Get a load of this, Harry. Neville asked Hermione. Quote, but she told him she was already going with someone. Ha! As if. She just didn't want to go with Neville. I mean, who would? Ginny, who will soon learn is going with Neville, tells them not to laugh. But think about what Ron's saying here. He genuinely can't believe, or doesn't want to believe, that Hermione got a date. Just then, Hermione returns to the common room asking where they are and getting mighty haughty, certainly so, when Ginny dunks on them by saying, guess what? Both my dudes right here just gotten turned the F down. All the good looking ones taken a run, said Hermione loftily. (laughs) 
incredible moment. From the book. But Ron was staring at Hermione as though suddenly seeing her in a whole new light. This is poetry. So painful and cringe-inducing because it's so, so true to life. So many of us have been on one side of something like this before. Hermione, Neville's right. You are a girl. Oh, well spotted, she said acidly. Well, you can come with one of us. No, I can't, snapped Hermione. Oh, come on, he said impatiently. We need partners. We're going to look really stupid if we haven't got any. Everyone else has. I can't come with you, said Hermione, now blushing, because I'm already going with someone. No, you're not, said Ron. You just said that to get rid of Neville. Oh, did I? said Hermione, her eyes flashed dangerously. Just because it's taken you three years to notice, Ron, doesn't mean no one else has spotted I'm a girl. Oh! Savage. Ron insists after Hermione's left that she's lying about having a date. Ron is a real fucking P.O. shit, these couple of chapters. Sorry, my guy, Ron, I love you. Yeah. You got to pull out of this tailspin because you're a fucking mess right now. Bad time for Ron. This is a bad time, <laughs> Ron. Why would it be more palatable for him to believe that she's lying? Which, who would lie about that? Because right. we will all soon find out that she is a date because he's not emotionally mature enough to process his friends growing up, finding new relationships with other people who see them in a different way as more than friends. Or because on some level, he sees Hermione differently and he just is not mature enough yet to recognize it or know how to deal with it. Or both? Probably both. Probably both. Ron suggests that Ginny go with Harry and Ginny looked extremely miserable. <laughs> And she told them she'd be going with Neville. Wow. Another link there for Harry and Neville. You Truly. Know? <laughs> a lot of links. She thought it was her only way into the ball and just missed her chance to go with her true love, Harry. When Parvati and Lavender enter, Harry takes direct action. Parvati, we go to the ball with me. Everybody else is fucking taken. <laughs> Last resort time. She giggles and blushes fiercely, but says yes. He asks Lavender. She'll go with Ron, but she's already going with our guy, Seamus. <laughs> Those Uranus questions will have to wait two more years, Juan Juan. Parvati says she'll ask her twin sister, Padma, if she will go with Ron. Chapter 23, the Yule Ball. Snow is falling. In the book, the pale blue Babadon. Carriage looked like a large, chilly, frosted pumpkin next to the iced gingerbread house that was Hagrid's cabin. But in another way of thinking, could be spring. Let's think of a different way of considering maturing as blossoming. It's a very similar concepts with important differences. Maturing is certainly more centered on the inner evolution of a person while blossoming evokes an outer one, the green bud becoming a flower. All of which is to say, Mine's glow up is in full swing. She already has a date for the ball as we recently learned, though the identity of said person is yet to be revealed despite Ron's frequent attempts to spring the question on her. We know, of course that the lucky man is one Vic the dick. <laughs> but yeah. back to that glow up. Hermione, what's up with those chompers, Big B? <laughs> From the book, Hermione, said Ron, looking sideways at her, suddenly frowning. Your teeth. <laughs> did you expect me to keep those fangs Malfoy gave me? <laughs> of course, Ron did not expect that, but it's just, he's now noticing, and by the way, smooth move, Ron, that her teeth look not just no longer hex, but Actually fucking great. Well, when I went up to Madame Pomfrey to get them shrunk, she held up a mirror and told me to stop her when they were back to how they normally were, she said. And I just let her carry on a bit. Hell yes, girl. Don't worry about Ron. I know Vic appreciates you and he's, you know, just an international superstar and all. Get what's yours. Yeah. <sighs> how was Ron reacting to pain and disappointment? Not great, Bob. No, not great at all. 
<laughs> Check out the Ringer's top 100 episodes of all time <laughs> to find out what that and other references mean. <laughs> sure. Being the second fiddle to Harry Potter, having the worst dress robes at school, striking out left and right with potential dates to the extent that Harry had to go and get a date for him. That's hard. <laughs> That's painful. That's disappointing. That's embarrassing. That's basically all the negative emotions rolled into one. But, Ron, Ronald Billius Weasley, lean in. Yes. Give us your ear. Yes, please. Listen closely. None of that is any excuse for taking it out on your fucking owl. What did Pete Widgeon ever do to you other than hoot delightfully? Really delightfully and carry your shit to and fro. God, Ron. <laughs> Quote from the book. Oh, look at that weenie owl. Isn't he cute? Says a group of third years when Pigwidgeon appears with Sirius's reply. And Ron says, in response to seeing this, to witnessing this charming scene of joy, stupid little feathery git, Ron hissed, hurrying up the stairs and snatching up Pigwidgeon. You bring letters to the addressee. You don't hang around showing off. Ron, we ride hard for you. We do. Maybe harder than we should. Well, I'm just saying tough love is important. Sometimes being someone's friend is letting them know when they're fucking the hell That's up. That's exactly right. We Ron. say this because we care. Yeah. Grow the fuck up. Ron, you're like two days away from sitting in front of the television, but the teleclision, <laughs> as Arthur would say, with like a hungry man microwave meal just wondering what went wrong. I love a TV dinner for the record. Yeah. But Ron, <laughs> it's time to grow up. Please. Because Hermione is. She's not waiting around. Certainly is not waiting around. She's like attracting the cream of the <laughs> of the teenage wizard crop out here. Christmas morning and who should wake up Harry but Dobby. Harry gives Dobby for a Christmas present, which he just made up. Basically, he lied to Dobby, by the way. I just want to point that out. He's it's, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got you something. It's true. What did he get him? Vernon's knobbly old socks as a rushed present. Ron, in one of his few redeeming moments in this stretch of chapters, gives Dobby, who's worried about the socks being two of the same pair, a pair of his own to mix and match. And a sweater, too. Dobby knew, sir, must be a great wizard, for he is Harry Potter's greatest friend. But Dobby did not know he was also as generous of spirit, as noble, as selfless. Dobby's present for Harry also sucks. Love them. Hand knit, one featuring broomsticks, one featuring snitches. I'll just mention as my my binge fam knows that my stepmom hand knit me Gryffindor socks and I felt like I was living in this moment. It was beautiful. So cute. <laughs> it's wonderful. Bard Eye's commentary in the socks later will lead him to realizing Harry and Dobby are quite close. Just one more bit of intel that he uses to mature his plan. The Dursleys present, meanwhile, quote, consisted of a single tissue an all-time low. That's just, like, don't send anything. <laughs> if only Dobby had been able to knit Ron's dress robes or the Dursleys had sent enough tissues for Ron to dry his delicious tears. It's time to dress for the ball. And my guy looks like a fucking horror show. <laughs> He's managed to remove the lace frill stuff with yeah. a severing charm, but now his edges are all frayed. If Ron was like a little bit cooler, he could carry it off as like, this is a look. This is yeah. what it is. It's this a is, nice commentary on his current emotional right. state. This though. is what's going on now, but no. <laughs> From the book. I still can't work out how you two got the best looking girls in the year, muttered Dean. <laughs> Animal magnetism, said Ron gloomily. Ron's first question when Parvati tells him that Padma will meet him in the entrance hall is, where's Hermione? Get it together, yes. guy. I love that. He can't control it. He loves I don't, her. He loves her and it's starting to pop to the surface. Honestly, like, love Ron. Hermione is 
stooping to a lower level with Ron. I'm sorry. Oh, wow. She can wow. do like a lot better. Can't wait to dive into this in Hellos. <laughs> I'm just saying at this point in time, it's like she's pulling international superstars and Ron is out here a fucking three quarters of a mess <laughs> on a frayed emotional state screaming at his cute fucking owl out in the hallway. And it's like, <laughs> it's not even a contest at this point. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's not. Good notes. <laughs> Ron's feelings have bloomed beyond ignoring. It's wild to think back on the Hermione Harry shipping that still existed after this chapter. So full of Ron Hermione tension and passion, albeit suppressed. Pod is eyeing Ron's fraying sleeves when she sees him, but he doesn't even notice. He's not looking at her. Just looking for that gal of his. In the hall, as the champions gather for the ball, Victor Crumb. Vic the dick. Vicky. Makes his grand entrance on his arm. Stunning creature by the name of Hermione Danger Granger. Woo! At first mistaken for, quote, a very pretty girl in blue robes, Harry didn't know. <laughs> That's fucking wild. <laughs> Harry only takes a closer look when he's actively trying to avoid needing to look at Cedric and Cho. And when he looks, his jaw drops. Quote, she didn't look like Hermione at all. She had done something with her hair. It was no longer bushy, but sleek and shiny and twisted up in an elegant knot at the back of her head. She was wearing robes made of a floaty, periwinkle blue material, and she was holding herself differently somehow. This is a great moment. Yeah. This is a great moment. First of all, I want to let the record state quite clearly, unambiguously, Hermione doesn't need a glamour moment to be fucking dope. She could have carried around those 20 books forever and kept her big yes. teeth and her bushy hair and never yes, put on the sure. stress and still been a legend and a hero. Of course. Listen. But yes. Sure. Clearly, this makes her feel good. This makes her feel like something in her life has changed. Like she's taken a step. Like she's matured in this certain area. And it's awesome to see her so happy. Hasn't talked to Ron yet, so she's still cheerful for now. Harry's not the only one who's like, Damn! <laughs> Who that? <laughs> Jason observed that this is uh, reminiscent of the, you're the one that I want. <laughs> it really is. At the end of Grace. What did she say? What are you doing? Stud. <laughs> Crouch isn't there, but Percy, who's recently been promoted, has appeared. And he's in happy his... to tell you. Yes, listen, enough. Has appeared in his stead. He's not in period, but he doesn't need to be to act like a total dick rider. Not everyone is caught in a conversation as dull as Harry's. Hermione looks wrapped. She was deep in talk with Victor Crumb and hardly seemed to notice what she was eating. Hermione's glow up has turned Mr. Scowl Crumb into a babbling brook of small talk. <laughs> Harry, who realizes he's never heard Crumb speak. None of us have heard Crumb speak. Crumb doesn't speak a lot unless he's like in the presence of goddesses. <laughs> Harry observes him. We have grounds larger even than these. Though in winter, we have very little daylight, so we are not enjoying them. But in summer, we are flying every day over the lakes and the mountains. <laughs> Hermione teaches Vic, who thinks it's Hermione or Hermonini, to say her name. Everywhere Harry looks, he sees love and lust blooming in equal measure. There's Floor! taking silvery gold Vila shits on Hogwarts <laughs> as Roger Davies looks on like some drooling Pez dispenser like, yeah, yeah. great, this place is a fucking shitbox. You're absolutely right, Fleur. Oh yeah. my God. Listen, Roger made his way into the bushes later. <laughs> he so did. They he got, played this they well. They got busy. 
floor. It's like, yeah, this uh, place is a drear, a dim piece of shit castle. Terrible. Awful people here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been thinking, I've been saying that. Anyway, there's Hagrid looking cleaned up for Madame Maxine. Both couples will later be seen in the gardens. The former getting busy, as we just mentioned, and the latter getting into a slight tiff. Quick aside, when the half-giantess asks you, does this dress make me look like a half-giantess? Say no, (laughs) Hagrid, even if she literally is a (laughs) half-giantess. Tonight surely will be another night to remember, unless, unless... Happen to be one Ron Weasley, for whom this will clearly, clearly be a night to forget. Ron and Hermione share what can only be described as an excruciating conversation, which Harry, much to his chagrin, witnesses because Parvati has long since ditched his ass at this point. Harry Potter, terrible date. Really awful. <laughs> Horrible date. Just bad. Vic has stepped away to grab some drinks. Hermione comes over to her pals. It's hot, isn't it? (laughs) I think it's just you. Said Hermione, fanning herself with her hand. Victor's just gone to get some drinks. Ron gave her a withering look. Victor, he said. Hasn't he asked you to call him Vicky yet? Actually, I call him Vic the Dick. (laughs) Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why, Ron. (laughs) Hermione is... Totally stunned by this reception. What's up with you, dude? Yeah. Ron launches in. He's from Durmstrang, spat Ron. He's competing against Harry, against Hogwarts. You, you're... Ron was obviously casting around for words strong enough to describe Hermione's crime. Fraternizing with the enemy. That's what you're doing. Hermione, because she is dope as fuck, is not gonna lay down for this bullshit. She just starts running down the list of times that Ron basically offered to I want, does polish he, crumbs broomstick Does handle. he need a place to sleep? I wonder. Should I give him my bed? <laughs> Hermione points out that Ron was all, Vic, can I have your autograph? When Durmstrang arrived, by the way, Ronnie, How's your action figure? How's your Vic the Dick action figure going, my guy? Great little detail <laughs> in the next chapter about how Harry finds the arm of the action figure torn <laughs> off in the dorm. Hermione reveals that Crom had been going to the library all that time to talk to her, but had struggled to pluck up the courage. Amazing to think about. A superstar. Afraid to talk to a girl. Very humanizing. Ron continues to dig down into the crater that he has carved out for himself by alleging that Vic, Ron, this is just truly, my goodness, the worst right now. This is bad. Vic only wanted to date Hermione for information on Harry. Like, how bad could it get? Quote, Hermione looked as though Ron had slapped her. It's truly crazy. She is so wounded by this. Think about how offensive this is. Not only does Ron not possess the emotional maturity to honestly assess and convey his own feelings, but he compensates for that inadequacy by cutting Hermione down, by making her feel like there's no way Crumb could truly be interested in her. She tells him Crumb hasn't once mentioned Harry, and Ron's reply, well, then he probably wants you to help him with his egg. Again, (laughs) Ron. (laughs) This is just a terrible, terrible sequence for him. And... There is a part of you 
Is there? That understands and can relate to the sensation sure. when you want somebody else. Yeah, sure. You don't feel like they want you and you don't know what to do about it. That's well, a bad that. feeling. It's a bad feeling, but you cannot act like this. But you don't do this. <laughs> you do not. <laughs> Guys, don't do this. Harry chimes in and says, basically, Ron, I'm fine with this. Yeah, so don't use me as your, <laughs> your pawn here. <laughs> Hermione notes that the whole point of this thing, the whole reason that the tournament exists, is to build bonds between schools and young witches and wizards. She flees. And when she gets up, Padma, who is there for all of this, turns to Ron and says, are you going to ask me to dance at all? No, said Ron, still glaring after her. Really awful stretch for Ronald Weasley. My guy, get over it. To escape Percy's self-aggrandizing, Harry and Ron step outside and they stumble upon an extremely important exchange between Karkaroff and Severus Snape. Yes. Don't see what there is to fuss about, Igor. Severus, you cannot pretend this isn't happening. Karkaroff's voice sounded anxious and hushed, as though keen not to be overheard. It's been getting clearer and clearer for months. I'm becoming seriously concerned. I can't deny it. Then flee, said Snape's voice curtly. Flee. I will make your excuses. I, however... I'm remaining at Hogwarts. This is about the dark mark and how it's returned and growing clearer and stronger, we will eventually realize. It's important to remember that Harry isn't the only one whose suspicion is maturing. The signs of Voldemort's return, even if it's not clear to Harry in the moment that that's what Snape and Karkaroff are talking about, are everywhere. Why don't more people care? Why don't more people see? Not everyone is as bad as Ludo Bagman casually hand-waving Bertha's disappearance for months. She'll turn up! <laughs> Someday. But nor is everyone as astute as Sirius who's reading the signs. Once Snape spots Harry and Ron and forces them to walk onward, they accidentally stumbled into a conversation between Madame Maxine and Hagrid that they definitely do not want to hear. This is, this is nails on a chalkboard stuff. This is the anti-you-want-extendable ears for this a moment. This is like hearing your parents fuck or something. It's <laughs> awful. <laughs> Harry tries to distract himself by watching a beetle who will eventually learn is Rita, but can't help but hear, I just knew, knew you were like me. Was it your mother or your father? Hagrid wants to talk about, obviously, being a half-giant. He thinks, finally, someone like me, someone I can bond with over this, someone who understands the magic and the pain of it alike, the prejudice, the bigotry that people this size have to face. And Hagrid shares the story of his childhood, how his dad raised him after his giantess mother left. Which I need the physics on that. I need the I need the math on that. Well, easier to understand than if it had gone the other way, I guess. Right, because then it would be there'd be a death involved. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but I still <laughs> I, I still need to understand how this happened. I need more information, but we could do that later. <laughs> Hagrid always seemed like someone who had to grow up fast, what with getting expelled at 13. But we're gaining so much more insight into the circumstances that forced him to mature and the people who helped him do so. Dumbledore is a father figure to him. Yes. Sadly, the other party in the conversation does not feel that way. I have never been more insulted in my life. <laughs> I, I have big bones. Baby, you got Big bones. <laughs> Just say that. You got some big, big, big half a giant bones. Just own it, baby. You look great. She does look great. That's what I'm saying. 
For Harry, at least, things are looking up. He encounters Cedric as the night is winding down. Listen, Cedric lowered his voice as Ron, just feeling like shit, disappears. I owe you one for telling me about the dragons. You know that golden egg? Does yours wail when you open it? This right here is exactly what Bard Eye counted on. Reciprocity. Decent people doing decent things for each other. Bart's plan is maturing and everyone is playing into it exactly as he wants them to or has led them to. When Harry confirms that his egg does in fact whale, Cedric says, well, take a bath, okay? Take the egg with you, he adds. Mull things over in the water. Cedric, pal, Harry flat out told you the first task was facing a dragon. You have to speak in a motherfucking riddle here? That's it? That's your idea of reciprocity? At least to his credit. Cedric's offering fine accommodations. Tells Harry to use the prefect's bathroom. Harry wonders, quote, was he trying to make Harry look like a fool so Cho would like him even more by comparison? His anxiety and his anti-Cedric stance at this moment have really, really bloomed. Something else? It's blooming too. A row, a towering one, a blazing one. When Harry reaches the Gryffindor common room, he finds Ron and Hermione screaming at each other. This is one of my favorite moments in any of the books. It really is. Tough. It's devastating, but it's just, oh, we've all been here in our lives. How Ron came back from this is honestly unknowable. It's such a great moment for Hermione, though. That's the flip side of it. As sad as it is that this ruins her night and ruins this wonderful experience for her, she has such a command of herself and the people around her. It's just fabulous to watch. Harry hears, well, if you don't like it, you know what the solution is, don't you? Yelled Hermione. Her hair was coming down out of its elegant bun now, and her face was screwed up in anger. Oh, yeah? Ron yelled back. What's that? Next time there's a ball, ask me before someone else does, and not as a last resort. Ron mouthed soundlessly like a goldfish out of water as Hermione turned on her heel and stormed up the girl's staircase to bed. Ron turned to look at Harry. Well, he sputtered, looking thunderstruck. Well, that just proves completely missed the point. Harry didn't say anything. He liked being back on speaking terms with Ron too much to speak his mind right now. This line is so good. But he somehow thought that Hermione had gotten the point much better than Ron had. This moment has always really stood out. Even Harry, who we love, but who we've never considered particularly emotionally observant or astute in his own (laughs) affairs. No. He sees this clearly. He can see that Hermione has it right and that Ron either doesn't see it or isn't ready to admit what he feels. Ron is caught in a state of arrested development, and everyone and everything is shooting past him. What a mess. Chapter 24. Rita Skeeter's scoop. Fuck her. We'll get to that. (laughs) Harry, feeling like hell after seeing Cho and Cedric holding hands, arrives at Hagrid's hut for class to discover an elderly witch, Professor Grubbly Plank, subbing for him. Rita Skeeter has a scalp. Uh Uh-oh. The latest edition of the Daily Prophet has hit the stands, and it contains a scalding hot story about Hagrid's propensity for exposing his students to dangerous, magical creatures. All facts, by the way. Dumbledore's hiring practices are questioned, which, well, listen, Malfoy is quoted in the article, which I think is a major weakness of it, speaking about how terrified many of the students are of Hagrid's class where injuries are routine. That part of it is somewhat fine. I think Malfoy being like, just ask my friend Crab was... <laughs> that flobberworm bite. <laughs> it stings. Rita reveals that Hagrid has illegally bred scroots. Again, these are facts. The piece goes on to mention <laughs> that Hagrid is not a pure blood wizard. In fact, 
He's not a pure human. That is where, for me, now you've gone too far. His ancestry has absolutely no bearing on the story whatsoever. Hermione might not have reacted with shock or prejudice when Harry and Ron told her about the admission they overheard Hagrid make to Max, but the rest of the world seems to be much more in line with what Ron's comments to Harry implied was possible. Hagrid is hiding now that his secret is out. It was the secret. The guy was like 11 feet tall and it was like, oh my God, come on. <laughs> we, live in, we live in the wizarding world. This is a shocker. Uh, people had different theories. Yeah. You know, Malfoy thought uh, he had swallowed a bottle of Skelligro. Yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Ron and Hermione, who catches up on the article later after enjoying the delightful unicorn lesson, which listen, I'd rather study unicorns than listen. <laughs> Prof Grubbly Plank, she can teach. Yeah, she can. She really can. Both want to know how Rita could have possibly heard this conversation. So begins Hermione's determination to find out how Rita is doing this. With maturity, with age, with experience, comes cynicism. The wizarding world, like our own, would ideally be a place where everything is on the up and up. People play by the rules. Not so, of course. Even our guy Harry is lying about how far he is with his egg to Hermione, one of his two best friends, someone who helped him till the wee hours of the morning figuring out how to do the first task. Nothing is sacred. Our trio spies Vic the dick in his swim trunks going for a winter swim, but there's no sign of Hagrid, who Harry's hoping to see. He does see someone else in the three broomsticks. Ludo, literal bagman, bagman. <laughs> this is a great moment here from Hermione. Doesn't he ever go into the office? Does, does anyone? Like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> Arthur has been sticking to five days a week, <laughs> banker's hours, since literally Voldemort died. So I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Ludo spies Harry in. Immediately pulls him aside. And Harry learns that something is up with Barty Crouch. No one's seen him in a while. Ludo here. Quote, but would you mind not mentioning that to anyone, Harry? Unbelievable stuff. (laughs) Because Rita Skeeter's still poking around everywhere she can. And I'm willing to bet she'd work up Barty's illness into something sinister. Probably say he's gone missing like for the jargon. Can I just point out? <laughs> Let me just point out. Rita Skeeter, who has just written something awful about Hagrid. Mm-hmm. Right here. Who is the only person who is in any way putting pressure on Ludo? I'm literally never at the office. I'm fucking up to my neck in debt to Goblin's Bagman. <laughs> The only person that's like even giving Ludo an inkling that maybe we should try and clean up our act is fucking Rita Skeeter. That's all I'm saying. It would be a good thing if Barty Crouch's disappearance wound up in the paper. Yes. That, that is true. <laughs> oh, it would be terrible if, it, if she wrote it like something sinister. Are yes. you kidding me? It is concerning that Ludo <laughs> does not even consider the possibility that something really might be amiss here. Probably say he's gone missing like Bertha Jorkins. Well, yeah, like Bertha, Barty Sr. has become Voldemort's pawn. Soon, he's going to be like Bertha in another way. He's going to be fucking dead. Again, more signs all around us that Voldemort's station is maturing. He's gaining headway. He's again becoming something to fear. And this man, a Ministry of Magic official, is hand-waving it all. Only just now, sending out people to look for Bertha, Half a year too late. Half a year too late. I should be gone for six months before anyone looks. But listen, 
<laughs> He's been too busy focusing on how to make himself whole again. Yes. Bagman, who was huddling with goblins before chatting with Harry, keeps earning sharp stares from those very same goblins as he's talking to Harry, wants the youngest champion to know that, wink, wink, if there's anything he can do to help, wink, wink, anything yeah. at all, wink, wink, how's your egg coming, wink, wink. When Harry, who, of course, at this point does not know that Ludo is up to his neck in goblin gambling debts, balks at this. Ludo says, Harry, we all want a Hogwarts victory, don't we? And Harry, great comeback here. Did you offer to help Cedric? He's a Hogwarts champion too. <laughs> well, no, Ludo hasn't. Harry turns him down. Ludo hasn't. <laughs> You're right, he's got his money on Harry. Harry turns him down, his suspicion growing. Why is Ludo singling him out? When Fred and George approach Ludo, hunting for their cash, as we will learn, he dashes and the goblins pursue. And then Rita enters, muttering about Ludo and adding to this very ominous encounter with him. She says to Hermione, quote, I know things about Ludo Bagman that would make your hair curl. Not that it needs it. Damn. Hermione officially states her intent to take Rita down. After this disturbing run-in, our friends pound on Hagrid's door, determined to force him out of hiding, shouting about not letting that foul woman keep him down. Dumbledore opens it. He's there with Hagrid, who's clearly distraught. The half-giant wants to leave the school, and he's sure the student body would agree with that. They do not. Of course we still want to know you, Harry said, staring at Hagrid. You don't think anything that Skeeter Cow... Sorry, Professor. He added quickly, looking at Dumbledore. I have gone temporarily deaf and haven't any idea what you said, Harry, said Dumbledore, twiddling his thumbs and staring at the ceiling. All right, said Harry sheepishly. I just meant, Hagrid, how could you think we'd care what that woman, thank you, Harry, wrote about you? It's not sync to the levels. Dumbledore adds that countless letters have arrived from parents who want Hagrid to stay. Dumbledore tells Hagrid that he refused to accept his resignation, but... Dumbledore was there before and Hagrid was still a mess. It's the kids who swing it. A measure of Harry, Ron, and Hermione's increasing maturity is how they console Hagrid. And it's like a role reversal here in which the younger parties are providing the emotional support for an adult. You know what, Harry? He said, looking up from the photograph of his father, his eyes very bright. When I first met you, you reminded me of me a bit. Mom and dad gone and he was feeling like you wouldn't fit into Hogwarts, remember? Not sure you were really up to it. And now look at you, Harry. School champion. Also Cedric. Let's not forget Cedric, people. He believes Harry can win. He believes that Harry's victory can change the way people think about what's possible and who belongs. Are you telling us to remember Cedric Diggory? Yes, let's just remember him. <laughs> remember that he's also the school champion, guys. Co-champion. Can we say co-champion? Like, out of respect for Cedric. Can we just call Harry co-champion? Chapter 25. The egg in the eye. Finally. After actual months, Harry decides he's procrastinated long enough. It's time to figure out how to unlock the clue hidden in his egg. He dons his invisibility cloak and, guided by the Marauder's map, heads for the prefect's bathroom, which, it must be said, is pretty dope. We're talking marble, swimming pool-sized tub, lots of taps. There was also a diving board and a mermaid painting on the wall. Each tap carries a different sort of bubble. Again, amazing work here by JK, introducing this new and tantalizing magic in a moment where the stakes are so high. Just as Harry is wondering if Cedric's whole plan had been to lure him here and get him into trouble with Filch, he hears a voice. I'd try putting it in the water if I were you. It's moaning Myrtle. Myrtle, Harry said in outrage, um, I'm not wearing anything. Creepy as fuck. Per Myrtle's instructions, Harry opens the egg 
underwater and for once it doesn't wail, it sings. He dips his head under the water and this is what he hears. Come seek us where our voices sound. We cannot sing above the ground. And while you're searching, ponder this, we've taken what you'll sorely miss. An hour long, you'll have to look and to recover what we took. But past an hour, the prospect's black. Too late, it's gone. It won't come back. Harry listens numerous times in order to memorize the lyrics. And then he's like, okay, what does this mean? Slow, aren't you? Myrtle says. And Harry <laughs> figures out that it's got to be some kind of underwater creature. Myrtle's like, don't worry, Diggory had to think about it forever. And then Harry figures it out. Okay, it's got to be people. He experiences one moment of surging joy with his own brilliance. And then he's like, hold on, I can't swim. And plus like an hour underwater, that sounds like a long time. This is an interesting moment to consider Harry's mental maturation and jokes aside in a judgment-free, serious way. It's tempting to mock him for not immediately believing there has to be a magical solution for this. But also there's a reason this tournament is supposed to have an age limit. Harry, as a fourth-year student, hasn't matured far enough in his magical education to know how to cope with tasks like this. He has gained a lot of knowledge, though, a lot more than he had when he set out that night. And so it's time to go back and checking the map on his way to make sure the coast is clear. Something strange catches his eye. The name, Bartamius Crouch, moving around Snape's office. What? Remember, at this point, Harry and the reader don't know that Mr. Crouch is a senior with a son bearing his same name. Nor does Harry yet know that one of the few limits of the map's magic is that it doesn't distinguish between people who bear the same name. His only deduction in this moment is that this is Crouch Sr., Barty Crouch, the ministry official who he knows— who he just learned from Ludo is supposed to be missing, poking around Snape's office in the dead of night. What is going on here? Now, Harry has matured in numerous ways since his first year at Hogwarts, when no one and nothing could prevent him from plowing headlong into his efforts to catch Snape in what Harry was sure was Snape's plot to seal the Sorcerer's Stone. Harry now is more measured. He's more deliberate. He's more advanced, magically, certainly. More inclined to measure the variables, consult his friends, Consider what the things happening around him might mean, but he will never be able to help himself in a moment like this. This is just who Harry is. He's too innately curious, too convinced too often that he's the one who can solve something. Often, he's right about that, but just as often, this instinct gets him into serious trouble. Still, he sets off to see what Crouch was up to. Harry's creeping down the stairs, wondering how law-abiding, rigid-ass Mr. Crouch could be doing this, why he would be doing this. And then, boom, his leg sinks into that trick step. They got Neville early in the school year. He wobbles and the egg, slippery from the bath, slips out of his hand, goes boom, 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 down the stairs, past the tapestry, and opens with a castle-shattering wail. <laughs> the cloak slips, and as Harry snatches it back on, the map falls out of his hand. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> Filch arrives, picks up the egg, which he thinks only peeves could be up to nonsense like this. But then it gets worse. Who should arrive but Snape? And Snape looks fucking mad. Filch is like, Peeves is doing stuff. Look what's going on. But Snape says from the book, but Peeves couldn't get into my office. When Snape heard the wail, he passes office, which was ajar. Somebody's been searching it, he says. This is such a tense moment. Snape's trying to get Filch to go with him to help search for an intruder. Harry's right there praying that they walk away, but also like, how am I going to get my stuff back? And he's worried that Mrs. Norris can smell him after his heavily perfumed bath. Shouts to cats. 
And then, clunk, clunk, clunk. Moody. Pajama party, isn't it? He growled up the stairs. When Filch mentions Snape's concern about his office, Snape freaks. Shut up! Whoa! Snape clearly doesn't want Moody to know that he's worried. Highly notable for readers and Harry alike. Moody goes up to Snape and then his eye sees Harry. Remember, the magical eye can see through invisibility cloaks. Quote, he alone could see the full strangeness of the scene. Moody asks Snape about Filch's comment. Not hiding anything else in your office, are you? A loaded Easter egg-laden exchange ensues. Quote, you know I'm hiding nothing, Moody, he said in a soft and dangerous voice, as you've searched my office pretty thoroughly yourself. Moody's face twisted into a smile. Orr's privilege, Snape. Dumbledore told me to keep an eye. Dumbledore happens to trust me, said Snape Mm -hmm. through clenched teeth. I refuse to believe that he gave you orders to search my office. So many levels and layers to that. All only cleared us by book's end. And really, series end in some cases. Snape would expect this of real Moody because of Snape's past as a Death Eater. Bard Eye needs to get into Snape's office to steal potion supplies for polyjuice, but he also has reasons to keep tabs on and intimidate Snape, who, in his mind, betrayed Voldemort for Dumbledore. Our understanding of Snape's extremely complex backstory and loyalties is continually maturing, but this is a massive installment right here. Of course Dumbledore trusts you, growled Moody. He's a trusting man, isn't he? Believes in second chances. But me, I say there are spots that don't come off, Snape. Spots that never come off. Do you know what I mean? Snape suddenly did something very strange. He seized his left forearm convulsively with his right hand as though something on it had hurt him. Moody laughed. Get back to bed, Snape. Again, so much here. Harry will harp on that second chances mention incessantly. And this will be the key to us ultimately understanding Dumbledore's trust into the Snape Lily reveal. We will come to learn also that Snape's reflective motion there is about the dark mark on his forearm, what Karkaroff was mentioning, what Moody would use as a tactic to intimidate a foe, what Barty Jr. would use as a taunt against someone he perceives as a traitor. This is just such a rich text here. And what about, not the actual meaning of the words specifically, but the idea behind this all, the substance. Are there some spots that don't ever come off? Snape's entire character arc argues otherwise. That it posits that no matter how broken or far gone a person is, no matter how flawed an individual continues to be in one's day-to-day actions, even after one's reformed, it's never too late to try to become a better person. It's never too late to try to mature your way into redemption. When Bardai points out the map to Snape, Harry has no choice. He has to signal to Moody that the map is his. And so he does that. He waves his hands, saying, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Bardai Moody sees this. Akio Parchment, boom, grabs the map. And now Snape's beginning to piece this together because he's seen this map before. He knows that egg belongs to a champion. Potter is here. Potter in his invisibility cloak. Love that. So this is just what Harry needs. Snape thinking he was the one who broke into his office. And Moody intimidates Snape in a way we've never really seen. Oh, you seem pretty interested in Potter, and we just so happen to be on the lookout for someone who might have it in for that boy. I think I will go back to bed, Snape said curtly. Amazing. Wow. This is a fraught moment. Now it's Moody and Harry alone, and Moody asks about the map, his eye going every which way. Merlin's beard, Moody whispered, staring at the map, his magical eye going haywire. This is, this is some map, Potter. He asks Harry who he saw, and when Harry tells him Crouch, naturally, Bardai is alarmed. 
Could anyone piece together his identity based on this information? We learned that by now, Barty Jr. has received instructions to find his father who's become too difficult to control. This map is an incredible treasure, not only a tool he can now use to do his bidding, but a weapon someone else could have used to find him off the board. When Harry asks him why Crouch would have searched Snape's office, he says, put it this way, Potter. They say old man eyes obsessed with catching dark wizards, but I'm nothing, nothing compared to Barty Crouch. Again, this is both a real clue about Snape's past and Crouch's past and a way for Barty to couch his intentions. Amazing plotting and writing. What Truly. a balancing act. Oh, if, if there's one thing I hate, he muttered more to himself than to Harry and his magical eye was fixed on the left-hand corner of the map. It's a Death Eater who walked free. <laughs> this plays, of course, in the moment as a thirst for justice by a famed Auror who's probably the best there's ever been at hunting dark wizards. But it's really the lament of a deranged man who thinks everyone should be willing to sacrifice it all for Voldemort. These are the cowards, right. as far as Barty Jr. is concerned. After Moody pulls Harry free and asks him to take the map, he asks if he's ever thought of a career as an Auror. He's impressed by what Harry pieces together about the current climate. And that's just based on what Harry shared. He knows far more. Another moment of Harry gaining confidence, maturing, because of a man who's essentially trying to kill him. This will be Harry's career, his path that he pursues as he matures. And he got part of this from Barty Crouch Jr. Chapter 26, the second task. Okay, so Harry got the clue out of the egg. Great. But Harry's like, can we talk about Moody and Snape? Sitting in the back of class, Harry fills in Ron and Hermione on the post-bath running with Moody and the potions master. What's Moody's game, they wonder? Has Dumbledore brought him in not just to teach, but to keep an eye on the potential Death Eater in their midst? Hermione, as usual, sees the bigger picture. We thought Snape was trying to kill Harry once before and he was saving his life. Also, let's focus on another question. What's up with Crouch? Harry, true to his promise to keep his godfather abreast of any unusual goings-on, sends a letter to Sirius, but also true to form, shows the limits of his maturation and growth. He's simply not capable of accepting that nothing's going on with Snape. Quote, I just want to know what Snape did with his first chance if he's on his second one. Back to that clue. Knowing that he'll face a thing is one thing, but figuring out exactly how to tackle that task is another. How is Harry going to remain underwater for an hour? Ideas are tossed around. He could use Akio again to summon scuba gear from the nearest muggle town. And Hermione shoots this down right away by pointing out, one, you don't know how to use that. And two, you'd run afoul of the code of wizarding secrecy because there'd be scuba gear flying miles <laughs> yeah. across the countryside. Okay, what about transfiguration? That would be great, except we don't get taught this until year six. One instance of true maturation, Harry asks McGonagall for permission to use the restricted section rather than just sneaking in there. But still, he can't solve it. He realizes that he never asks Sirius for advice. So busy he'd been to tell him about Snape and Moody, Sirius's reply simply asks, hey, when are you going to Hogsmeade next? So what's Harry going to do? The night before the task, Harry's no closer. He's starting to freak out. In the library, tearing through books in search of an answer, his heart leaps just when he sees the word water. <laughs> and our friends, Ron in particular, is grasping at straws. Closest was that thing to dry up puddles and ponds, that drought charm. But that was nowhere near powerful enough to drain the lake. Ron's immaturity has been a disaster to behold in these chapters. But here, he's kind of suggesting inflicting a genocide on one of the creatures that inhabit Hogwarts Lake by freaking drying it up. This is next level idiocy by Ron. But by all means, let's keep going. 
Harry, just go down to the lake tomorrow, right? Stick your head in, yell at the mer people to give back whatever they've nicked and see if they chuck it out. Best you can do, mate. Useful. Great. Hermione's taking the library's lack of answers as an insult. It had never failed her before, says the book. As exhaustion threatens to sweep over Harry, the twins arrive to take Ron and Hermione to McDonagall's, and he's alone again. Harry wakes from a nightmare about drowning to find the Dobinator in the library with him. Dude, the second task kicks off in 10 minutes. The house elf actually knows how to solve the underwater problem. You have to eat this, sir, squeaked the elf. And he put his hand in his pocket of his shorts, drew out a ball of what looked like slimy, grayish-green rat tails. Right before you go into the lake, sir, gillyweed. Harry asks what it does. Dobby tells him it will allow him to breathe underwater. And Harry's like, are you sure? Because yeah. if you're wrong about this, I'm dead. Dobby is emphatic. This gillyweed is the substance, of course, we will learn, that was in the book Bardi gave to Neville. It's the substance that Bardi intended for Harry to ingest all along. It's also the substance that he then uses Dobby to provide once he realizes how close Harry and Dobby are and how Harry never asked Neville, who has this book, for help. It's also the substance that Snape will think Harry stole from his stores. Every moment in this book, every single thing, 50 connections to other things. It's incredible. Harry rushes down to the lake, just in time. Ludo Bagman casts Sonoris on himself and addresses the crowd. Well, all our champions are ready for the second task, which will start on my whistle, which is right now, Harry, because, dude, you're not punctual. They have precisely one hour to recover what has been taken from them on the count of three, then one, two, three. Harry eats the gillyweed, wades out into the lake. Suddenly, feels like there's a pillow over his mouth. He can't breathe, and that is because he has sprouted gills. Also, Wonderful. webbed hands and feet. Dives into the water like he was born to it. But he's not alone down there. Some grindy lows set upon Harry. With some difficulty, he manages to fight them off. Then he sees Myrtle. You want to try over there, she said, pointing. I won't come with you. I don't like them much. They always chase me when I get too close. Like who much? Ah, the merpeople. Harry discovers a village of merpeople. And there in the merpeople village square are Ron, Hermione, Cho Chang, and a young girl who we will, and Harry, will soon discover is Floor's sister. They're unconscious, but clearly alive. Harry grabs a sharp rock from the lake floor and begins cutting Ron's bindings. He manages to hack Ron free, and Ron is floating there just gently above the lake floor, and Harry's thinking, okay, but where is everyone else? Harry's innate heroism here begins to get the best of him. He's not just going to sit idly by while these three other people drown. So what is he going to do? Okay. He begins to cut Hermione free. You take your own hostage. Leave the others, one of the mer people tells him. But there's no way Harry's going to do that. She's my friend too, Harry yelled, gesturing toward Hermione, an enormous silver bubble emerging soundlessly from his lips. I don't want them to die either. Just then, Sed swims up. Sed cuts Hermione free with a knife. He brought a knife, smart freaking guy. (laughs) They swim away. Still no Fleur, no Vic the Dick. Oh, wait, there he is. Vic Crumb swims up. He, it seems, has rather crudely turned himself into a shark man. (laughs) Crumb cuts Hermione loose and away they go. Now it's only the girl. Harry leaps into action. He cuts her loose, swims with extreme difficulty up, 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 up with Ron and the young girl. The gillyweed now is wearing off. His lungs are burning. His leg muscles are screaming. And then finally he breaks the surface of the water. Harry is aware vaguely of a crowd cheering. He looks at Ron and the girl. Their eyes are open. He seemed to be waking up. Ron speaks first. What? This, isn't it? Then he spotted Fleur's sister. What did you bring her for? Thanks a lot, asshole. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, Ron. Oh, my God. Harry says, Fleur didn't turn up. I couldn't leave her. 
Harry panted. Fleur, at least, is more grateful. Gabrielle, Gabrielle, is she alive? Is she hurt? But Ron actually makes a good point. Harry, you prat, said Ron. <laughs> you didn't take that song thing seriously, did you? Dumbledore wouldn't let any of us drown. The song said, it was only to make sure you got back inside the time limit, said Ron. I hope you didn't waste time down there acting the hero. Oh. In this particular instance, as we'll see in a moment, that decision to play the hero is rewarded as moral fiber. But at times, this will hold Harry back. And yes. by the way, this is actually a bullshit point awarding. I'll talk about this in a second. In a particularly painful moment, Hermione will bring it up as Harry attempts to rush to rescue Sirius. No matter how much Harry matures, this will always be his instinct. It's a vulnerability that Voldemort tries and in a few moments succeeds in turning into a weakness, but it's also Harry's greatest strength. The judges huddle up. Fleur managed to cast the bubblehead charm, but was attacked by Granillos and failed to retrieve her hostage. 15 points. Cedric used the same charm and was the first to surface with his hostage. 47 points. Victor Shark, who's pulling a beetle, a.k.a. Rita, out of Hermione's hair, came in second, 40 points. Harry used gillyweed to grow gills. That was great, but returned to the surface last. But because of his determination to save Gabrielle and as well as Ron, he is awarded 45 points. Karkaroff, naturally, is the only judge who doesn't think Harry's desire to save everyone is worth reward. But Harry's still tied for first place now with Cedric. The third task, they are told, will take place on June 24th. All Harry needs to do between now and then, buy Dobby a pair of socks for every day of the year. Shouts to Dobby! The I, winner of this is, episode. I agree. I I am <laughs> Team Karkaroff on this one. Come on, like sure. Well, your you team so far. Your team Dursley, Team Rita. I'm just saying. You course, literally came. In, you'd be team you Karkaroff. literally came in last. How are you the dumbest one of all four contestants that doesn't understand the rules of the thing? Not understanding the rules is tough. However, I would However, argue that the tournament is designed to measure more than just. The fucking results of a stopwatch. No, I disagree with this one. I'm sorry. It's like literally everyone else understands it, but you don't. You actually think that Dumbledore is going to be like, yeah, and if you don't get him in an hour, they drown. Look, okay. The point you're raising are fair. I think it is an effective moment that simultaneously reinforces that Harry should not be in this tournament. He is young. He does not yes. have the mental maturation and clarity of his competitors. But he also is the worthy hero because of a choice like that. He's the worthy hero of this story. He's in this contest because of various machinations by mm-hmm. people, mainly Voldemort. <laughs> and he doesn't professor. and he does not deserve to be in first place nor in the tournament writ large. But <laughs> what he has shown in this tournament has shown that he is the worthy hero of this story. Yeah. He shouldn't get 45 points for that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> he literally came in last and is the only contestant that's too dumb to understand how it works. I respect it. Yeah. I would have stayed to I save mean, I you. I respect I'll it. I'll just say that. Don't. <laughs> I'm fine. I love that Ron's literally like, why is she here? It's great. Okay. <sighs> I'd pull the Rita Water Beetle you. out of your hair and, and I'd appreciate stay to it. save you. Jason. Yeah. Your time's half gone, so tarry not, lest what you seek stays here to rot. It's more like three quarters gone, actually. So to help us avoid that rot... Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads. Lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the Hogwarts Great Lake. Let's go underwater, shall we? Sadly for us, and especially our old friend Jason Cale, the second task chapter is the only one in the series in which Harry actually descends into Hogwarts Great Lake. More on that rarity in a minute. The lake is actually a Scottish lock 
freshwater and landlocked and about a half mile in diameter. It's satisfyingly creepy, Rowling writes on Pottermore, full of magical creatures that would have trouble existing in waters swarmed by muggles, most notably Grindelos, which Harry and Fleur, to her chagrin, counter in the task. Mer people, who we'll encounter again at the end of Half-Blood Prince when they pay their respects at Dumbledore's funeral. And the giant squid. The squid is perhaps the friendliest creature in the lake as it allows students to tickle its tentacles on sunny days. And when Dennis Creepy falls into the lake on his first night passage across, the squid is kind enough to return him to his boat. Indeed, beyond hosting the second task, the lake's other main role in the series is that it hosts the new students' ride to Hogwarts Castle. It thus conveys a sense of wonder and awe early in the series, which Rowling has said is purposeful as water signifies rebirth. And in that moment in Sorcerer's Stone, Harry is starting a new path in his life. In a Pottercast interview in 2007, she also suggested that when Hogwarts students graduate, they'll sail back across the lake to gain a measure of symbolic closure. The lake occupies another interesting role in the series, as it could have taken on much greater importance on Pottermore. Rowling calls the second task her favorite Triwizard task, and she says she thought about allowing her characters to spend even more time in the lake. She writes, In the original draft of Chamber of Secrets, I had Harry and Ron crash into the lake in Mr. Weasley's Fort Anglia and meet the Mer people there for the first time. At that time, I had a vague notion that the lake might lead to other places and that the Mer people might play a large role in later books, and they did. So I thought that Harry ought to be introduced to both at this stage. However, Whomping Wheeler provided a more satisfying less distracting crash and served a later purpose in Prisoner of Azkaban too. Ultimately, the lake never did connect to anywhere outside the Hogwarts grounds and Harry and company never really use it again after Goblet. Still, the possibility is out there. With rolling ends. The appearance of the Durmstrang ship from its depths in Goblet of Fire hints at the fact that if you are traveling by an enchanted craft, you might be able to take a magical shortcut to other waterways. I think it does suggest that. I mean, the boat comes out of the fucking lake. What, what else could be suggested by you that? You remember when the books were still being written, there was a lot of theorizing about whether the Hogwarts lake might connect in some way to the underground lake in the Gringotts caverns? That's what Ever I think. Read a theory I think about that? It, my whole thing is they are all connected. Why would they not be? It just feels like they I must like be, it. right? It's nice to think about. Not all is lost potential, though. Even beyond the second task and the trip across the lake, it can serve as a simple home, too, for one of the simplest characters in the series for some unspecified point, Neville's anxious toad Trevor finally escaped his forgetful owner and Per Pottermore when he finally slipped off to join his brethren in the Hogwarts Lake. Both owner and pet felt a sense of relief. Go get it, Trevor. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Neville will love you, guy, but not a great owner. No, no. A lot of these kids, tough pet owners. Live Trevor. your life, Trevor. Trevor's all dried out, getting potions put on him. <laughs> Let him be free. Really, Jason? If you're holding out for universal popularity, I'm afraid you'll be in the studio for a very long time. Not a week has passed since we launched Binge Mode when I haven't had at least one tweet complaining about the way we run it. But what should I do? Barricade myself in my office and refuse to podcast again? No! I must split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations, beyond the myriad we've already shared, from Goblet, chapters 21 through 26. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one, though we don't realize it at this time, this chapter introduces us to the Room of Requirement. This is huge. When Karkaroff is being shady as fuck, talking about protecting all of our secrets because he's a death eater, Dumbledore says, quote, Oh, I would never dream of assuming I know all Hogwarts secrets, Igor. Only this morning, for instance, I took a wrong turning on the way to the bathroom and found myself in a beautifully proportioned room I have never seen before containing a really rather magnificent collection of chamber pots. When I went back to investigate more closely, I discovered that the room had vanished, but I must keep an eye out for it. 
Possibly it is only accessible at 5.30 in the morning, or it may only appear at the quarter moon or when the seeker has an exceptionally full bladder. This is amazing not only because it's our introduction to such a key plot device, and because Dumbledore is actually right that this specific manifestation only appears when the seeker has an exceptionally full bladder, and because it's further proof that JKR is just a master of introducing new essential magic before the moment when it becomes essential plot for the story. Also huge because this is such a stark contrast between the way Voldemort and Dumbledore think and feel. We can be hard on Dumbledore for letting so much happen at Hogwarts under his watch, but his willingness to admit that he isn't all-knowing, that is something that humanizes him greatly. Voldemort's hubris would never let him believe such a thing, as Dumbledore just said, and in fact, blinds him to the possibility that others would ever be able to discover his secrets, including this very room, the existence of it, where he hides the horcrux that he made from Ravenclaw's lost diadem. Number two, from the book, a scene from the Yule Ball. Amazing. When the next song ended, everybody applauded once more, and Harry saw Ludo Bagman kiss Professor McGonagall's hand. Oh. Dun, dun, dun! dun. We should actually, like, legit write fan fiction. How do they know each other? I wonder. (laughs) What interests could they have in common? I wonder. Number three, when Dumbledore is trying to make Haggard feel better by showing that everyone has questionable relations, he says, quote, my own brother Aberforth was prosecuted for practicing inappropriate charms on a goat. It was all over the papers. But did Aberforth hide? No, he did not. He held his head high and went about his business as usual. Of course, I'm not entirely sure he can read. So that may not have been bravery. Couple things here. First time that we've heard Aberforth's name. This is huge. He will obviously enter our life in the Hogshead and then in much more meaningful fashion in Deathly Hallows. While it makes sense that Dumbledore would not want to just freely mention his father who was imprisoned, it is also worth noting that Aberforth and his goat experimentation, not actually the worst thing that happened in this family. Also, given the history between Aberforth and Albus and everything that happened with Ariana, Kind of weird that Dumbledore just casually tosses this out like this. And maybe most importantly of all, this moment sparked about a bazillion internet theories about what exactly Aberforth did to that goat. Number four from Rita's article. While many of the giants who served he who must not be named were killed by auras working against the dark side, Fridwulfa was not among them. It is possible she escaped to one of the giant communities still existing in foreign mountain ranges. Lots of giant talk in this span, obviously, but in terms of foreshadowing future events, all that mountain talk is particularly notable because that's where Hagrid and Maxime will head in order to try to sway the giants to the side of good. And where, of course, he will ultimately find Grop, his half-brother. The discussion of how violent the giants are is also notable, presaging Hagrid's witness of a gurg coup. (laughs) Number five, Hermione after the observation with Ludo and the goblins of the three broomsticks, says the goblins are, quote, quite capable of dealing with wizards. Very clever. Some grip hook Deathly Hallows foreshadowing here, and not dissimilar from the warning that Bill will give Harry and Hallows. The goblins are not pushovers. They are not willing to cower to wizards. They're ready to fight for what's theirs, whether it's some gold or the sword of Gryffindor. Well, they made it. Number six, we must give props to our girl, Trelawney, who was once again almost right. As I sat here absorbed in my needlework, the urge to consult the orb overpowered me. I arose. I settled myself before it. I gazed into its crystalline depths. And what do you think I saw gazing back at me? 
an ugly old bad and outsized specs, Ron muttered under his breath. Harry fought hard to keep his face straight. Death, my dears. It's not Harry's, but death does hit the castle, R.I.P. Cedric. Speaking of Ron, he notes that if Harry died every time Trelawney had predicted, quote, you'd be a sort of extra concentrated ghost, though it's made clear that the forms that emerge from Voldemort's wand in the graveyard are echoes, not ghosts. This is sort of how Harry thinks they look. Finally, number seven. Small one, but we always like to track the Bezor mentions. And when Harry botches his potion, it is because he forgets to put in the Bezor. This is another reminder after our introduction to it in book one, before it becomes a lifesaver for Ron in Half-Blood Prince, that a Bezor is a key ingredient and in and of itself an antidote for poisons. Mal, if you don't like it, you know what the solution is, don't you? Oh, yeah? What's that? Next time there's a podcast, make your pitch for the champion before Isaac Cram and I vote, and not as a last resort. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most, and today we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Hermione Granger! Just going to say for the record that there's a case for Dobby. There's not a case there's for Dobby. A case for That's Dobby. fine. There's a case for Dobby in this episode, I mean, and I just want to state it for the record. And Isaac, if you cut this out, I will just I will riot. D- Dobby <laughs> showed up wearing mismatched clothing and was like, hey, I got paid now. Yeah, Dobby's getting and paid. And literally, what else? Nothing. Trailblazing is nothing. Trailblazing. How about providing gillyweed? At the behest of, like, the Dark Lord of Evil? While you wanted to award Cedric for telling Harry about the egg and that's also at the behest of the Dark Lord of no, Evil. No, no, no. He has a case for winning because he won the task. We landed okay. on Hermione. Hermione. Ultimately, because what a run. What a run for our girl. She dominates these pages. Incredible. She's crusading for elf rights against multiple obstacles, against a lot of entrenched opinion against what she's doing. And she discovered that Dobby is in the castle in the process. She tricked Madame Pomfrey into shrinking her teeth. Free of charge. I mean, that's huge. <laughs> Had the massive glow up at the fucking Yule Ball to the point where everybody's jaws dropped when she walked in. Boom, doom, I got chills. It's Hermione. <laughs> she absolutely owns Ron in every single conversation that they have on him. in these stretches. And you, I think you can say that this is such a crucial moment in Ron's life that if she hadn't done this for him, he would never become the person that she marries. You mean the clerk of a fucking <laughs> joke shop working for his brother while she's minister of magic? Yeah, congratulations, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> she fucking landed international superstar Vic the Dick Crumb, who's basically LeBron James of this world. This is big. (laughs) This is big. (laughs) This is like fucking... And not only that, he's into her before the tea. Like, he's trying to, like, get close to her in in the the library. library. Before Pomfrey shrinks the teeth, he just likes her legitimately. It's beautiful. Yeah. She also shows a, as usual, really nurturing instinct to go comfort Hagrid yes. and also rational thought to say, snap out of it. Let's go. Yes. You're not hiding anymore. And then dedicates herself to being like, yo, we're going to find out how Rita is getting this information. And guess what? She eventually does just that. Just an incredible showing for more girl. Shouts to Hermione now and always. That's right. All right, friends. Here at The Ringer, the food is simply superb. And we have choirs of wood nymphs who serenade <laughs> us as we podcast. Uh. So, do Isaac Lee and Zach Cram. 
our indispensable producer and researcher. Isaac, it would be great if you serenaded us. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again on Monday when we will be continuing our Goblet of Fire episodes by discussing chapters 27 through 30. Until then, remember, there are podcasts that don't come off the feed. Podcasts that never come off. You know what we mean? Hey, Mike, this is his time, Marine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I just want to talk to you about the Triwizard Tournament, or should I call it the Quad Wizard Tournament now, because they got this Harry Potter kid in there. I got a friend, his kid goes to Hogwarts. He's telling me, get this, three wizards supposed to uh, be in the tournament. Next thing you know, boom, fourth name pops out, it's Harry Potter, and the kid isn't even of age. It's freaking bullshit, Mike. Excuse me. I, I know this, we're on the radio. I can't say that. I think it's bullshit, Mike. And, you know, this kid, Vic Crumbs, this kid can fucking fly, Mike. I, excuse my French. I apologize again. And I agree with Igor that this is crazy that this kid, this little kid is in this, Mike. The four wizards, it's a tri-wizard tournament. You can't have four wizards. What do you think, Mike? I got to know what you think about this. I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you.